seeing the first black president. You're talking about seeing him reelected again. Then you're talking about seeing Donald Trump become president. Then you're talking about living through four years of a Trump presidency. Then you're talking about seeing a place like Georgia, where I grew up, where I've worked a couple of cycles myself, and then to flip the Senate all in a decade. It's like, I just want to hang my jersey in the rafters and go home now. Like, I feel like I've seen everything. (laughs) Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I've been talking to some of the many talented political operatives who had leadership roles in the recent Georgia elections. In this episode, I spoke with Jonay Wartell, a community organizer and political strategist. She recently served as runoff director for the Democratic Party for the U.S. Senate runoffs in Georgia. She's now managing director at STG, a political consultancy that specializes in running issue campaigns. Janae served as the chief program officer for Organizing Corps 2020, helping train over a thousand field organizers for the 2020 election. She's had a variety of key roles working for the Democratic Party. We had a good conversation about her career in politics and what she's learned along the way. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Jonay Wartell of STG. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Jonay. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Certainly. Jonay Wartell. Um, Most recently, I served as the runoff director for the Democratic Party for the U.S. Senate runoffs and currently serving as the managing director at STG. What is STG? STG uh, is a progressive consulting firm based in D.C., working with a series of progressive clients, um, particularly in the environmental and healthcare spaces. We've also been a part of um, some of the primary elections and, and, and do some political and electoral work, but advocacy is really our strength and environmental and healthcare causes and progressive work is really what we pride ourselves on at STG. What does STG stand for? STG stands for Smoot Two's group, which is a nod to the founders, Paul Two's and Juliana Smoot, who famously were a part of President Obama's first and second presidential campaigns. And um, they really kind of anchored the firm's vision around advocating for progressive causes, understanding that elections have consequences and have impact on the landscape, but that advancing progressive causes when it becomes a policy, healthcare, protecting the environment is also an important fight that progressives should be involved in year round. Did I read somewhere that they're no longer with the group? Yeah, they've since transitioned. And now 
Um, we've maintained the STG as the, the brand. We more so refer to it as STG as the firm instead of like Smoot 2's group as a nod to the specific individuals. Well, having started something called NGP, I'm always in favor of initials like that. I was raised on NGP. So whenever I hear those initials, it's music to my ears. <laughs> uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Marietta, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. I grew up in a very traditional traditional red area, as a lot of the, the suburbs pushing out from Atlanta are. And you know, it was a community where there was not a lot of representation of progressive ideals. You know, being in the South and being in a red district, we weren't having conversations about social justice. We weren't having conversations about about healthcare, about equality, about opportunity. And so I think my pathway to public service in the electoral sector was really about um, understanding that representation matters when you're talking about elected officials and people who are going to engage the public in dialogue about how we improve our communities. You have to have people for whom that's their driving mission, that's their core, that's who they are. And so I really wanted to get into politics and my dad kind of gave me the political bug because he was very engaged because I recognized that in order for us to have representation in Congress, in local legislatures, that represents the kind of values that I believe and you know, many people who work with me believe are important. We have to have elections and organizing that reflects the strength of democracy. And so I got involved as an organizer for that very reason, because I felt that change uh, could only be made by getting in the game, not made by sitting on the sidelines. And so when I became an organizer, I really unlocked what I believe was a power to see that you can make change. And sometimes it's incremental and sometimes it's, you know, big leaps, but you got to get in the game and you got to f- be in the fight and you got to talk to voters about issues that matter. And that's how, you know, we as, as progressive organizers um, kind of play the, the long range game as I call it. Well, you said you picked this up a bit from your father, the political bug, but what age did you start moving into the organizing world? So I, as a college senior, which is North Carolina, Greensboro, right? Yes. At University of North Carolina, Greensboro, go Spartans. I originally wanted to go into law because I really saw that as an opportunity to really kind of advance my values in in the values of communities that I I, um, had worked with in the legal space. And I felt that, you know, helping to make the justice systems more fair and and create equal access and equal protection, that was my pathway. And, And so I got kind of going down that path, applying for law schools, and then realized that, in fact, what I really wanted to do was community organizing. And that was the real and true pathway to creating that lasting change. And so I got bit by the campaign bug, joined what was then President Obama's first campaign, and became a field organizer. And then, you know, the rest is history. I've been organizing ever since. Well, what was it about field organizing for Obama that, I mean, that doesn't have to be the most glamorous thing that would, like, make you want to spend your career doing it? What was it about it that worked for you? Yeah, I think that it was really seeing not just the impact that I could make as an organizer, you know, going out and talking to voters, but also 
the ripple effects of organizing and engaging volunteer leaders that really was empowering for me because you were bringing people into the process of organizing their own communities in a way that they had never been empowered to do, giving them tools and skills and training that helped them to talk to their friends, family, neighbors about issues that matter. And it was then seeing them replicate that for others in their own network, just to see a movement grow in a way that I saw on the Obama campaign when my volunteer leaders then became, then were training other volunteer leaders who were then training other volunteer leaders. And so that's the power of organizing. And that ripple effect was really what got me hooked. I mean, there's something also about being on a campaign that's an insurgent campaign where the candidate is so incredibly good at telling his story and being a politician in the best sense and winning. Put all of that together, it's hard not to stay involved after that, right? Exactly. And, and indeed, telling personal story was such a huge part of our training as organizers on the Obama campaign. And I think that's really how you build a bridge to connect with folks in community is tell them why you're doing the work. Tell them why you're motivated by your experiences to get out there to talk to voters about issues that matter. And you know, President Obama himself, you know, modeled it in his early career, but then also made sure that that was the foundation of the kind of campaign that he wanted to run. Being able to tell personal story and then connect with others based on your personal story, that's the best and strongest tool in any organizer's toolbox. And I take that with me to this day. I understand you ran a House District campaign. What was that experience like? Well, coming off of being an organizer in a very structured program like the Obama campaign, and then going from that back to my hometown uh, in Marietta, Georgia, to then run a state house race. Uh, I was a little bit of a fish out of water, to be honest. You know a lot as, an, as a first-time organizer. You, you maybe don't know a lot as a first-time campaign manager. You probably think you know more than you do. So I had to learn about you know budgets and targeting and, and how to run a mail program and things that, because my candidate had resources that uh, we were able to do, but I wasn't as skilled at doing it. So I had to lean on a lot of like mentors and people who knew the world of political organizing and management um, really well and draw on those experiences. But what I can say is that it was really empowering to go back to the community where I grew up to get a public servant elected. And I think that's really our hope and our dream for young organizers. Me as someone who's trained young organizers is to say, you know, you can be a part of a high impact presidential race, but then go back to your communities and, and find out what's the work that you could be doing. How can you use those tools and those skills and build on them um, to create long lasting change right in your backyard? And so that was really a, a cool experience to translate that into my own community. You also worked for the Georgia House Democratic Caucus. I had talked to Ashley Robinson recently. Was she there at the time? She was indeed. I think we started around the same time. I had just come off of managing the state house race. She and I were at the House Caucus, and that was a year of redistricting. Stacey Abrams had just become House Minority Leader. It was a time where we really saw a lot of energy in the local legislature as we um, addressed the very difficult special session that was redistricting, um, particularly because of the, the attempts to, to draw districts that 
impacted black and brown voters in a very negative way. And so doing that work on the ground level just really gave me a greater appreciation for local organizing, local elections and the consequences that they have. But it also inspired me to continue the work. Working with those two women that you just mentioned, what were they like? What did you learn? Incredible. Just two incredibly smart and tenacious and hardworking operatives. And, you know, to this day, I'm in contact with them both. And Stacey in particular, her investment and her vision for a Georgia that could turn blue and her ability to bring people around that vision and inspire people to invest time, resources over a decade to really see the results like what we saw for the 2020 presidential election. Just seeing someone with that vision just so early on and seeing them carry that forth, both through her gubernatorial run and then into um, the work she's doing now with Fair Fight. I mean, when you think about inspirational leaders that you look to and you draw on their strength, I mean, she is absolutely at the top of that list for me. And it's been just an honor to watch her career from from the sidelines. And, and Ashley, who we both cut our teeth in the same work, um, to see her now leading some incredible coalition work in Georgia, it's inspiring. And, and you know that you meet so many people in the fight, but to still be shoulder to shoulder with those same people a decade later just shows you like the work continues and it just it, it never ends. So uh, it's pretty awesome. There aren't that many people who stand out like Stacy seems to. She's kind of larger than life now in, in the way that she's viewed pretty broadly. What is it about someone that sets them apart like that in your view? It's really having vision. Stacy saw the vision of, of a Georgia that could be blue a decade before anyone saw it manifest. Having that sort of foresight, but then also committing to doing the work is just incredibly important because I know a lot of people want to see their state flip. They want to see progressives win. But the work that it takes, the work that she committed herself to over a decade, amazing. She saw what happened in 2010. She saw what happened with redistricting. She founded you know, the New Georgia Project, registered new voters, rolled up her sleeves, You know, talked to anyone who would listen for over a decade about why they needed to invest in Georgia. And slowly people started to see the vision. And that is leadership. When you can bring people along, when it's like you're looking into the distance and you like can't see the light and then you help people to see the light, that leadership inspires a generation. There are people who are in this work right now because of Stacey Abrams who wouldn't otherwise be. And that's the mark of, of leadership and that will be her legacy. That and turning Georgia blue, you know, that small thing. But that is the work of a, of a, of a visionary leader. Being in that environment has to have been pretty formative for you as a young organizer over time. How did it change you? It shaped me as a leader because I think it helped me to understand that not every fight will be won immediately. And I think as an organizer and as as someone of this generation that often wants to see the needle move quickly, I see younger organizers and they, they like they win an election and they want all the policies to um, magically change. Having been brought up and as an organizer and as an operative, seeing Stacy work over a decade, I think it, what it helped me to see is like, it's, it's always going to be a long range game. 
right? Time will, time will drag on for, for eons more. And so if you think that in one cycle or for one election or in one elected official, there's going to be the automatic change, like it won't happen. Watching Stacey work helped me to understand that the things I cared most about, I had to stay in the fight, choosing causes and candidates that helped to advance that, but not to expect it all at once. And so it's helped to sustain me over the decade plus that I've been able to do this work because I know that every day I need to stay in the fight to see the better progress that we can make and then do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And that is what lifelong organizing looks like. And it's something that I hope as I'm mentoring younger organizers to inspire them to do as well. What's hard is not just how much patience is required, but also that sometimes things go backwards. 100%. 100%. I've been at the highest and high of highs and seen the best of the best, most inspiring, most historic election nights. And I've also been a part of some of the worst, most <laughs> gut wrenching, most life altering election. I've been on both sides of the spectrum. And having come through two presidential elections with President Obama and then the 2016 election, which I also worked on, and then to be a part of the 2020 election. I mean, you're talking about the gamut, right? You're talking about seeing the first black president. You're talking about seeing him reelected again. Then you're talking about seeing Donald Trump become president. Then you're talking about living through four years of a Trump presidency. Then you're talking about seeing a place like Georgia, where I grew up, where I've worked a couple of cycles myself and then to flip the Senate all in a decade. It's like, I just want to hang my jersey in the rafters and go home now. Like, I feel like I've seen everything. <laughs> and and yet the next 10 years will bear out its own trajectory on, on how the policies and the administration of President Biden even change and shape that landscape even more. So for me, it's just been Again, that's like the life of an organizer, right? You're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but you always have to stay in the fight, right? And so I always encourage organizers who, you know, after 2016, we had a number of organizers who were really beside themselves with the loss. And I had to help them understand that, like, this was one fight. And yes, it was devastating to lose, but you had to stay in the fight. Go find your next state house race. Go find your next congressional race. Like, we have to keep going. And that's the spirit of organizing is understanding you get your, you get up, you dust yourself off and you keep going. I'm older. So I've been through as a kid, Nixon and Reagan when I was in junior high. And, and then when, when you go into the history books, it's just been like that since the beginning of the Republic. So we do need the people who are fighting. How was the 2012 cycle for you? The Obama reelect? That was really exciting because I had a chance to work in North Carolina. I went to college there, as you know, and I got a chance to return to the state. And it was a cycle where North Carolina had just turned blue in 2008. And so there was expectation in 2012 that we we're going to keep the state blue. And so there was a lot of momentum with the volunteer organization that had been left behind. But there was also... Um, a lot of work we needed to do because it was such a slim margin. It was 2,000 votes, five votes per precinct. We knew that that was going to be a real challenge to kind of recreate that coalition and turn out those same number of voters. I was a regional that year. Um, I had the area known as um, Durham, kind of the triangle. And it was one of the highest performing Democratic 
areas in the state. So it was like no pressure, just turn out every single Democratic vote in this county, in this uh, in these precincts, and you'll be fine. But we came up a little short that year in North Carolina. And, you know, luckily the great work in other states made it so that we were still able to win the presidency. But that was a tough thing. You're celebrating election night, but you really wish you'd won the state that you were working in. It's a mixed bag. And so, again, you have to, to celebrate the work that you did. Be proud of it. Make sure your team feels proud of the work um, because every fight matters. But then you dust yourself off. And I got back to work, working next in, in a training role. And so the fight continued. You spent some time at the Association of State Democratic Chairs, right? It did, indeed. That was the my next role after 2012. Um, went to the DNC and worked at the what we call the ASDC and worked with all the state parties across the country. And that was a, a, an adventure because a state party has any number of different challenges and opportunities, depending on the cycle, depending on the leadership, depending on the elections that are coming up. Um, But my focus was on training and building a training infrastructure that state parties could have for their staff and for their grassroots volunteers. So again, you know, harnessing the momentum that we had coming out of the 2012 election where everybody felt great. My focus was how do we sustain that by continuing to train leaders and give them the tools that they needed to continue organizing in their own communities? Because again, you know, you're back in the fight. Once you win an election, it's back in the field, talking to voters, getting candidates to run, influencing policy. It's all the same work in between elections. And so not taking their eye off the ball as state parties and as local organizers was really important to me. Did you come to opinions about what worked and doesn't work about the way state parties fit into the campaign apparatus and the way we govern the Democratic Party? The thing that I learned there is that we have to have strong local infrastructure in every state in order for progressive candidates, Democratic candidates to compete and to win. I think too often we focus on a single election and then you know, that candidate kind of takes up all the air in the room, brings in all these organizers, executes a winning strategy, wins or loses. And then we kind of throw out the playbook and then start all over again. But I think that what's important is that state parties, local parties continue the year around work of talking to voters and making sure that people know that the party is not just going away, that they're there to stay, that they care about the voters year round. And I found that that's often a challenge that the the party faces. And it's something we have to continue to, to improve upon is our investment in uh, year-round organizing at every level, because that's how we compete when election cycles come up. And, you know, Republicans do it. Uh, a lot of them have year-round offices or um, are talking to their voters year-round. And Democrats often, we, we go off to a different fight and shift our focus. And then we're scrambling to put back together a winning coalition in election years, and when they never have the time to talk to the voters uh, to turn them back out. And so it's a challenge. It's a mistake we keep repeating. It's a hurdle that we have to overcome strategically. I mean, there's an awful lot of political organizing that takes place outside of the party, that takes place in, I don't know, the indivisibles and the NARALs and just so many other parts of the progressive ecosystem. Do you think we have the right balance of stuff in the party and work outside of the party? I believe that 
there's so much work to do that I'm grateful for the Indivisibles and other allied organizations, the swing lefts of the world that are doing a lot of the targeting and voter and volunteer engagement and capacity building. But I do think that we have to focus more resources in the party and building long-term training infrastructure and long-term bench building efforts um, to make sure that we have candidates that can compete in all these districts, that they have well-trained staff that can support their campaigns and that they have enough resources to win. And I think that we don't put enough resources back into the party in between cycles. And then we try to like rebuild it quickly right before the, the elections. And so I don't think that we're doing enough inside of the party, but I see that changing with investments and programs like Organizing Core, which I'm sure you'll get to as a program that I helped to run um, for the 2020 presidential election, um, training a thousand organizers and, and trying to put them in key states. But like, we have to be doing work like that year around. It can't be a fancy, a nice headline or a nice talking point. It's got to be an investment. And, and so leaders like Jamie Harrison, who I know is the new chair of the DNC and others come from local organizing, come from local parties. And I think really understand and value that those programs are important. We have to build our bench and we have to build our talent pool. You spent a little time, I noticed, in the office of the D.C. mayor. I'm a D.C. resident, so that is important to me. What did you learn there? Wow. I learned that city government is very complex. It is. (laughs) (laughs) I could have never anticipated the amount of complexity in city government and obviously D.C. at a scale that's even bigger than other major cities because it's like it's got federal budget and federal implications for all the work that's done. I learned that it probably if you ever want to embark in a career in D.C. government, it takes you a year to actually understand like what the hell is going on. Um, And then probably like another year to navigate the systems to get things done. City government is in a place, the halls of city government aren't places that that electoral organizers usually walk through. I felt it a very unique and important experience um, in grounding my understanding for how cities uh, are equipped to impact change, but also the, the certain barriers that cities face when it comes to budgets, when it comes to personnel, when it comes to different policy initiatives that they're trying to push and how, despite having great elected officials, there are still barriers that cities face to really creating sustainable lifestyles for their residents. And so it made me more invested as someone who lives here in the district, but it also helped me to understand that, you know, city government is one avenue, but there are also a lot of challenges that even cities, even major cities like DC have to getting things done. Definitely. After having done one stint at the ASDC, went back to run it as the executive director. Was that a challenge? Did it come easy to you? Well, I, I drew on a lot of experience and relationships I'd had working with state democratic parties in my role as the training director. So many of those folks I had worked with prior to going back as the executive director. So it was very helpful to understand the culture, the challenges, um, the leadership, of state parties and their vision for their own states and democratic parties. And so uh, I had a little bit of a head start in some ways. So that was great. Um, But I often found that, you know, state parties do so much with so little. They work miracles in a lot of cases because they don't have massive budgets. It's not the place where a lot of donors typically invest. And so helping state parties grow, hire staff, train personnel, run programs, 
all on what was a modest amount of resources is really, I think, a, a, a test of good organizing to be able to inspire people to believe in the vision of local parties and executive directors do this every day, but inspiring donors that the fight in between cycles depends on having strong parties. And so being able to work with leaders to help express that vision to their local and national donors was a real crass course in good civics and good politics, but also exposed me to the challenges we have with building this long-term momentum at the state party level. You got the job of going to North Carolina in the 2016 race, and we lost North Carolina narrowly, two or three points, I think. What was that fight like? It was tough. You know, I think there were a lot of, you know, the primary was was long, and, and that really made it challenging to get a a program and an organization stood up post-primary in the, in the sprint into the general election. So there were a lot of things that happened likely much later than the campaigns would have liked. And, you know, in my role, I, I came into North Carolina kind of in that last, um, you know, last quarter of the campaign where North Carolina had become increasingly competitive in the weeks in the month prior to me arriving. And so there was a an exponential increase in investment there, which I believe was really smart by the the campaign, but it was a difficult thing to scale. And so going back to my point about why infrastructure is important year round is there was very little volunteer muscle memory or infrastructure to really inherit because again, there were a lot of challenges sustaining momentum in between 2012 and 2016. So for me, my challenge in now having more resources was to hire more organizers quickly, was to create more infrastructure offices, run a voter registration program while also preparing for a GOTV. And all of those things are very different, difficult strategically to do right on top of each other. And so the runway was very short. And so I think that was one of our key challenges. And we didn't have the ready organizers to scale the way that we needed to scale, right? So, you know, you're trying to hire 150, 200 organizers on a very short timeline. You don't have the ready trained talent for that. And so you end up hiring people who need a lot more training, who need a lot more skill development, and it puts you behind. And so, you know, I think that was a challenge in a lot of states, but it was especially a challenge in North Carolina. Did it make sense to you that North Carolina would go for Trump? That the majority of the people or 49 point something percent would go for him? Well, we knew that North Carolina was going to be a, a tight state. I think we knew that we were going to be in the margins. I don't think we really believed that the voters that would make the choice to, to elect Trump would make that choice. And we certainly didn't know that in some of our areas um, of turnout in parts of the state, like that we would not have the turnout that we needed. So I think it was a both it was both a recognition that you know there were voters that had been Barack Obama voters who are now not Barack Obama voters and then also that turnout wasn't as high given the stakes of the election. I think those two things taken together were were a little shocking given the person that we were running against, right? And so I think there were some realities of like why people made that choice that we had to face. There was also a reality of, did we invest enough in the communities that we needed to turn out? 
in order to have expected a better outcome. So it was a both and reckoning. It's like, why did we lose these voters? But also, why did these voters not turn out? And so the challenge that we grappled with was like how to solve for both problems um, coming out of the 2016 election. I read a lot about efforts by the Trump campaign to demobilize some of our voters, to discourage them, targeted ads that that were much more aimed less aimed at persuading their people out, but more at keeping our folks uninterested or angry. Did you see that? Was that something that came later, that understanding? Yeah, I think we we really can't underestimate the power of that sort of messaging and those sorts of ads that even encourage a spirit, a sense of apathy amongst voters or your vote won't matter, your vote won't count. You know, the, the party doesn't care about you or even that Donald Trump himself has an agenda for you that actually benefits you. We wave that off because we think, well, no reasonable voter is going to believe that, you know, that message. They've just got to turn on their TV and, and look at the guy who's running. But I think what we, we, we can't underestimate is even if someone's not inspired to go vote for Trump, it, does that have a, a suppressive effect in terms of our base being excited and motivated to turn out? Is there a sense of apathy that sets in where they say, okay, well, maybe it doesn't matter that I turn out. And so voters hearing those messages, we can't take for granted that they just wave them off and and they maintain that motivation to vote. We've got to assume that we still need to fight and win their votes. It's hard to know what the exact effect of those ads were, but I think that it can't be understated that when voters who are low information are hearing these messages, that it can have an impact on whether they turn out. What did you do after the 2016 presidential? I went back to my home district of Georgia 6, congressional district, uh, to work for John Ossoff. And, you know, this was right on the cusp of when it really became this high-profile race. That meant that there was this increase in attention and amount of resources and and eyes that were on the race that made it very exciting, um, but it also made it so high stakes. So there was a lot of I'd say, you know, stress, but good stress on the staff. And so we were able to, with the resources, to scale up an operation, a volunteer operation that was probably unheard of in a special election. Organizers in every part of the district, uh, volunteer infrastructure that rivaled the presidential in a lot of ways. And we had a, a really huge task, which was to, you know, take voters who had felt disoriented by the, the Trump win and channel that energy into the special election. And so there was a lot of grassroots enthusiasm. And while we came up a bit short, what that really showed was that when Democrats showed up and competed in districts that matter, that we could energize the volunteer um, and voter base to really compete in a way that I think Democrats hadn't been able to compete in that district in quite a long time. And so we definitely made a mark that I believe, led to what later was the flipping of the district with Congresswoman Lucy McBath being elected uh, just a year or so later. And so that high stakes election was just a great opportunity for me as an organizer and as an operative um, to take what I had learned in 2016 um, back to a district that I'd grown up in that I loved and, and do something pretty special. It does sound like a memorable experience. Uh, what was Invictus? Invictus was a firm that I founded uh, with um, one of my friends and, and former colleagues in the industry that really focused on creating and, and supporting 
campaigns and candidates, particularly down ballot races, um, with just strategic support, um, fundraising support, uh, things of that nature. And so we took on a, a couple clients in our infancy, and she is still today running that firm and doing um, some tremendous work with candidates, particularly in the South. So um, stepped away from that to go to the DNC, but it was uh, wonderful and, and very uh, eye-opening to be out on my own for a bit with uh, with a business partner. And we really enjoyed working together. Who, who was that business partner? Her name is Akila Inslee, and she is still uh, running the firm, taking on a number of fundraising, primarily fundraising clients. Um, from governor's races to mayor's races to down ballot races, just doing tremendous work and has a small team there and really, really proud to have worked alongside her in that capacity. That's cool. You learn a little bit about the consulting world and, and small business and things like that when you have to try to run your own shop, don't you? You absolutely do. It is a crash course slash masterclass in, in all the, the tough things, but also the fun things because you're kind of the master of your own journey. And you're the one who can say kind of how you want to make your mark. And so that is really inspiring, though tough. You mentioned that you went to the DNC. Why did you leave to do that? You know, there was a great opportunity under the leadership of Tom Perez, who had become the the new chair, um, to really rebuild and to create what was you know, known as the new DNC. And having been someone who had worked with state parties, who had worked, you know, in and around le- local legislatures, I kind of understood the different dynamics of how change works. And so I recognized that um, we needed a strong party in order to defeat Trump. And so that inspiration really was understanding that the fight in four years after Trump was elected was going to require that we really hunker down and build a stronger state party infrastructure and build our bench and train more organizers. And so I was really inspired by that vision. um, And that's what brought me back to the DNC. I interviewed uh, Rachel Haltom Irwin about organizing core. And I assume you worked with her on that. I did. She was my boss. (laughs) What was she like and what was that organizing core like and how well did it work? Wow. Organizing core has been one of my favorite professional experiences to date. You know, as as someone who came into organizing and had the support of my network and my parents and my family and had fewer barriers, but knew little about getting into organizing as a real profession, um, especially as as someone who had not grown up in a traditional progressive um, space or community there's kind of this mystique around how you get into organizing. And I think for young people and for people of color, especially there are a lot of barriers um, because, you know, in, in 2008, you know, a lot of folks joined the Obama campaign and did internships and fellowships and things for free. That's great for people who can afford it. That's great for people who have those resources, but not everyone does. And so what then organizing becomes is kind of this exclusive club of people who, you know, can can bankroll their own existence and don't need to make as much money or who can work for free. And we lack then representation from key communities where folks need to pay their bills, work for a living to survive. And so we wanted to remove the barriers to getting into organizing as a full-time profession. And so we dreamed up this um, paid 
fellowship program called Organizing Corps. And we targeted um, black and brown students who were graduating then right before the presidential election and were working or living in key states like Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and gave them an opportunity to get trained on what organizing is and community, how you talk to voters, how you tell your personal story, how you work man. And we then offer them an opportunity to work in the field using those real-time organizing skills to build kind of their, their muscle as organizers. And um, the commitment was that they would come back to work on the presidential election after graduating in the spring of 2020. And we were very successful in our work. There were um, hundreds of organizers that uh, wound up working on presidential elections and key battleground states. I say wound up, but really that was the design of the program who were some of the best trained organizers this cycle. And so we are really proud of the work that we were able to do, not only to remove barriers for our black and brown organizers to break into the industry, but also help to be the field margin by which a lot of the states were won um, this election cycle. And this is remedying something that you had felt very personally, the lack of these people. So it must yep. be. Is this something that will happen again? Organizing Core 2020, will there be an Organizing Core 2022, 2024, or do you think this goes away? Yes, we'll be back. Um, very excited that we are ideating on what Organizing Core 2.0 um, should look like. There, there's a fundamental belief, not just because of the work we need to do as a party, but because of the success of our program, that we need to have um, sustained effort like what Organizing Core created and the community that we built amongst these first-time organizers who represented communities all across the country from Detroit, Michigan to Philadelphia to, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina, these folks want to stay connected and they want to then help um, build the community of first-time organizers who are coming behind them. And so there's a, there's a legacy to this that is incredibly important for our party. So we are absolutely thinking about what is 2021 iteration of organizing core look like. So those those conversations are underway. But yes, we'll be back because that work is too important not to. And you say we, does that mean you'll be back with that? I am forever a part of the organizing core family <laughs> um, as its first and only chief program officer. <laughs> we see ourselves as a community because when you go through training and learning how to organize and then being a part of the election that we were just a part of, it's really hard for that experience not to bond you forever. And, you know, I'm great friends with a lot of people that I started organizing with over a decade ago. I fully expect that in, in whatever ways I can support keeping that community going and getting 2.0 off the ground, I am ready and willing, um, raising my hand. So really excited to see it come together. I have to say, I, I breathe a sigh of relief every time someone tells me that something that was built to defeat Trump is coming back because we, we we may have to beat him again or we may have to beat someone who's awful in a totally different way. So I don't want us to like, yeah. I want us to stay mobilized and get better, not fall backwards. Absolutely. And that's like been my life's work is like, how do we sustain momentum and continue building infrastructure? The other thing I'll say about organizing court is that we know that the best organizing happens when people represent communities that they grew up in, that they went to school in. And so the idea of organizing core was not just to break down these barriers um, and not just to train a thousand organizers to defeat Trump, but also to recenter us in what good organizing looks like. Good organizing reflects communities. And so 
these organizers who have now been through an election cycle, they're going to begin a journey of lifelong organizing. And that matters for a lot of reasons, for building the talent pipeline, for representation in key programs that are going to help the next set of elected officials or whomever is running connect with these voters in communities. Like that is a, there was lasting impact in that work. It's so much personal and professional pride in what we were able to do, but we have to recenter ourselves on what good organizing is. And that is when organizers reflect the community and they're local to that work. I know that you, after this election, went down to deal with the highly important runoffs, the two Senate runoffs in Georgia. And I've been very interested in that race because it was so pivotal to whether or not we'd be able to govern. And it was so tight and and so sort of separate from all of the other politics that came with the November election and even the kind of fight post that to deal with Trump's misinformation around it. So I talked to Ense and I talked to Ashley Robinson and um, Mondale and a few other people who work down there, but I I don't have a a great sense still of like, what was the team like? What was that effort like? What was your role? What was it from your lens? Certainly. Well, uh, in my role as the runoff director, um, I came in, in the period right after we knew that there was going to be a runoff and, you know, there are various scenarios that predicted that. And so when I got on board, one of the biggest opportunities that we had was to scale up um, the grassroots organizing um, through the coordinated campaign. There'd obviously been a lot of organizing happening through the 2020 cycle, but in terms of the coordinated infrastructure, there wasn't, there weren't as many organizers or as many active volunteers in the coordinated structure that we needed. And so scaling up meant a couple of things. One, it meant that we had to hire a bunch of organizers very quickly. And it also meant that we had to get started with voter contact very early on because we only had a couple weeks to do it. Um, We had three major holidays in the middle of the runoff when the runoff period started and election day, um, Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's Day. And then, oh, yeah, there was the height of a pandemic. Our work was cut out for us. As we scaled, one thing that we we felt was very important, one, was to make sure that we maintain local and diverse talent. And so the first place we looked was to all of the local organizations and folks who had been on the ground for weeks and months and years and said, where can we hire, how can we hire more local organizers in your community who are going to help us to shoulder this work of organizing and turning folks out? So from there, we were really able to build up the talent build up the talent that we needed on the coordinated side. And then we also had to think about how do we do this safely? Um, Because obviously with the pandemic, we had to think about the kind of in-person organizing program that we could run because we were, again, in a pandemic and we didn't want to expose our volunteers or voters or staff, you know, to any risks. And so for us, it was how do we do this well and implement safety practices that will ensure that everyone is safe. And so that was everything from making all of our processes contactless to, you know, using minivan to, you know, PPE, hand sanitizer, the whole nine yards. And we had a lot of experts who had done this work in other states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, where they had had a a program like the one we were trying to replicate. And so we drew a lot of best practices from that. 
so when we scaled, we had to keep all of that in mind. And, you know, on top of having tight timelines, et cetera, that was always something that we led with as an important thing to keep in mind on how we were building our program. What do you think people would be surprised to know about those runoffs that you know? I think people would be surprised to know that like all the campaigns work together extremely well. (laughs) There is often the presumption that when you have these two top targeted campaigns, when you have um, a national committee like the DSCC that's supporting the race, when you have the state party that just turned the state blue, when you have all of these folks who are on the ground and are and, and are supporting the race, the presumption is that there's going to be a lot of like headbutting and all of these sorts of things. And one thing that I was really pleasantly surprised with, but just I think helped our work to be easier was that like everyone stayed focused on the goal. We knew we had a very tight timeline. We knew we needed to talk to as many voters as possible. We needed to recreate this coalition that had delivered the state for Joe Biden, turn those same voters out. The mission was very clear. And so I think once people were really aligned on that being our our strategic imperative here, I think it quelled what could have been any possible squabbles or, if you will, around what to do. The mission was clear. And so I think that people might be surprised to know that, like, we had regular communication. We talked a lot about what made sense as we were scaling the program. We gut checked a lot of our assumptions. We we did a lot of things that uh, in collaboration that I think made the coordinated operation a really strong one. It was the largest in-person volunteer um, and staff operation in the state's history. And everyone was on board with building that and making it strong. And so we worked so well with the Ossoff team and the Warnock teams Folks might be surprised, but they had phenomenal teams and great candidates. When I learned it was going to the runoff, I thought we'd lose both of them, to be honest. The tradition in those Southern runoffs, going back a lot of cycles, has been a lot of drop-off, more on our side than on the Republican side. What was different this time? Yeah, you're you're right in that in that snapshot of the of history of runoffs in the state of Georgia. As someone who worked on the 2008 U.S. Senate runoff, that's the one thing you probably don't see on my CV. Um, I came back to Georgia after working for Obama in 2008 to work for the Jim Martin U.S. Senate runoff, and you know Democrats have traditionally um, had many challenges succeeding in runoffs, and we knew that that was just a result of turnout. So how do you that turnout, organizing, mobilization. And so we knew that running a strong in-person organizing operation would combat the turnout problem. We knew we also had, you know, the the momentum of having turned the state blue for Joe Biden. Um, so the runoff was announced kind of on the heels of that victory. So everyone was very energized. Volunteers were very engaged. So we were at kind of a fever pitch in terms of excitement about these races. And then, you know, the eyes of the world were watching. And I think Georgia knew that the way that they showed up, we needed to show up again. So we benefited from a lot of enthusiasm on top of hard work with that. And so, yes, I think that everyone was kind of like on the edge of their seat. Like, can they pull off two U.S. Senate victories? But I think we had the perfect storm of hard work, years of organizing that had just culminated in turning Georgia blue, great candidates, a great message, and really energized voters. And so I, I think that that was really the, the recipe for success. Well, one of the things you also had was Donald Trump 
thinking only about himself. 100%. And throwing, uh, you know, all kind of wrenches into the process for his own candidates, right? Yes. When the president of the United States, who has just been defeated in his own election, then comes to stump for you the night before your own election, talking about how the election is rigged and stolen from him, generally not the kind of surrogate that you need, right? doesn't help to motivate the base to delegitimize elections <laughs> as it turns out. And so he didn't do, he didn't do that, that ticket any favors. I didn't do uh Leffler or Purdue any favors. And so I think Georgia voters were making a clear choice about the kind of leadership that they wanted. And David Purdue and Kelly Leffler were not those leaders. But I do think that Georgia voters recognized their power um, and turning the state blue, that it was possible, that it had been done. And so I think that was also a uniquely motivating factor, too, um, such that Donald Trump not being on the ballot for the runoff election still didn't depress turnout, right? It, it, people weren't like, okay, Trump's defeated, we can all go home. People understood that the work was not done. We are just out from that election, but we're also well on our way to the 2022 election somewhat, unfortunately. And Georgia is, again, going to have really important races. It's going to have the Senate race again, the two-year term. And then your former boss, Stacey, you know, there's some talks you might run for governor. Midterms, we tend to lose ground. The party of the president tends to lose ground. They tend to be tough. They were certainly tough, the two midterms under Obama, What's your sense of how that state might go or what it's going to take to make it go the right way on another midterm? What we know is that organizing works, that competing in the state is possible for Democrats. I do think that the the work that continues to happen at the grassroots level in Georgia is going to continue to maintain the enthusiasm and voter engagement that will be needed for these upcoming elections. Um, certainly with Senator Warnock being up for reelection and, you know, us just having sent him to the Senate and, and that fight being very fresh, um, I think will be a motivator for voters. The gubernatorial election and the opportunity to send Brian Kemp packing is also motivating for voters. So I think there's some unique motivators that we can um, draw on. But I think that voters are engaged in a way that's not been Georgia voters in a way that's not been uh, that we haven't seen. Um, as recently um, in this, quote, off year, there's just a tremendous amount of interest in what's happening, even with the state legislature attempting to roll back the voting rights of millions of Georgians, stripping down Sunday early voting, um, making vote by mail harder. Um, all of these things are keeping Georgians alert and on their toes. And so I believe that we have some uniquely motivating factors this upcoming election. We just have to continue talking to voters about the stakes of this election. You see it play out every day and what's happening in the Senate. I believe that's the message that Democrats are going to make sure that every single voter hears. So I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about our chances of competing in 2022. When I look at your career and when I talk to you about it, I see, you know, a lot of different kinds of experiences but that kind of makes sense together as you sort of move around and up in the ladder of progressive politics. Is this the right career for you? Is it a good fit? Where, where do you go from here? I think so. Do we have, are there other options? I've always really wanted to be a barista. I've seen a bunch of people come out of politics and start their own like 
breweries or distilleries or running bars. It's an option for sure. (laughs) A very nice life. This is the work that I've chosen. It's the work I've honestly been privileged to do working in communities that I've, that I grew up in, in states that, you know, I love and cherish states that have been very formative in my career and my experience as an organizer and as, as a woman and as a person of color in this country, it's an honor to do this work. And so, you know, while it's my chosen career per se, it's really been my life's work and it's my life's passion. And so when I see ahead is more fights in my future, you know, there is still so much work to be done to make sure that that voters have an opportunity to choose their representation, that voters understand that there is power in showing up again and again at the ballot box, that we can transform this country, that we can create opportunity if we show up. Like that message is a part of who I am. And so I can't see myself doing anything else, wherever the fight may take me. Um, whether it's back on the, a presidential campaign, whether it's at a consulting firm, um, whether it's work in the social justice space. I'm also working with an organization called More Than a Vote that works with athletes to leverage their platforms to speak out against uh, voter suppression. All of that work for me is incredibly important, and I don't see myself slowing down. Well, I think we're, we are lucky that you're not and that you won't. I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there a question I did not ask that I should have? You know, I don't think so. I think that um, I really enjoy this conversation and, and it's been just, um, I think, just a holistic look at the landscape and the opportunities that we have ahead. Yes, it has been. Anything else you want to say at all? I would just like to really just encourage um, anyone who's listening to be reminded of uh, the stakes of the work that's ahead of us, um, particularly around voter suppression and stopping these rollback attempts with voters showing up in record numbers at the ballot box in 2020. You know, there is an assault on voting rights. There are efforts, concerted efforts to make voting harder. And I think that we need to be as a community vigilant about speaking out against these rollback attempts and doing everything we can to fight them. And so I think that the work that's ahead of us focuses squarely on that. And my hope is that any and everyone who can be a part of that fight in any way they can will do so. Me too. That was Janae Wartell. Janae is at stgresults.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.